As the U.S. government announces more sanctions on Cuba, people on the island and their supporters around the world are stepping up their mobilization in defense of the country's independence. We'll also discuss the legacy of the civil rights legend Bob Moses, the politics of the Tokyo Olympics, the renewed spread of COVID across the country, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's July 27th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, what do we have in store for our listeners this week? Well, we have a lot. Of course, today is in the news. Tomorrow we talk with Richard Wolf in the biggest stories of the economy. And of course, we're also reviewing basic concepts of Marxism. We have our multi-part series on China's foreign policy ever since 1949. We're coming uh, to the close of that series, but we'll have one more episode this week with Dr. Ken Hammond. Nicole, Esther, Walter, there is a lot in the news. And of course, as our introduction made clear, we're going to talk quite a bit today about Cuba. But I have to say that the Delta variant is spreading all over the world. COVID cases are rising. Vietnam, a country that did so well in terms of preventing or limiting the outbreak of COVID-19 a year ago, has now declared a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. That's in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon. When you look at Financial Times or the financial pages in the Wall Street Journal, those newspapers are focused less about people's health, of course, and more about what the impact of COVID is on the so-called economic recovery. But there's a lot of fear and trepidation right now within the capitalist Uh, media outlets like Financial Times, that the outbreak of Delta 19 is going to have a big impact on the world economy. And clearly their story even about Vietnam was not about what might happen to the Vietnamese people. It's about the fact that a big part of the supply chain, the early part of supply chain for manufacturing is now located in Vietnam and the impact that might have if factories are forced to close or restrain production, which they are obviously now doing if there's a curfew from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So we're going to keep our eye on COVID, of course, but I want to start with Cuba. You know, for the last week, we on this show and we as activists have been in full swing mobilizing against the CIA, USAID, USNED, that's the National Endowment of Democracy, all of these different intelligence services, and that's what they all are, working in coordination to carry out regime change in Cuba. This is clearly taking advantage of the severe shortages and hardships that the Cuban people are facing as a consequence of two things, mainly. One, the blockade, the blockade which has been tightened because Donald Trump, in an effort to undo Obama's policy, which began a partial opening to Cuba, imposed 243 new coercive measures, sanctions on Cuba, including preventing remittances from Cuban families in the United States or Canada being able to be sent back to their family members in Cuba, and other measures designed to make it almost impossible for Cuba to live. And on July 11th, as we know, there were protests mostly by discontented people, and they weren't huge in number, even though the U.S. 
and Western capitalist media would have made them sound huge, but they were people who were discontented and they weren't, quote, all counter-revolutionaries or anything like that. But this was part of a counter-revolutionary operation. And there are counter-revolutionaries, paid counter-revolutionary agents in Cuba. And the U.S. has embarked on a multi-pronged, multifaceted campaign to overthrow Cuba. So naturally, people who believe in Cuba's independence, Cuba's freedom, Cuba's sovereignty, and Cuban socialism have been working to try to say no to the U.S. effort to strangle the people on that island as collective punishment in an effort to topple the government that U.S. imperialism doesn't like. So a week ago Friday, there was an ad, a full-page ad placed in the New York Times that appeared on page five with 400 prominent signers, people who were leaders in their field in academia, intellectuals, artists, sports figures, people in politics, human rights activists, attorneys, they came together to sign this letter, this ad, which was an open letter to Joe Biden, demanding that Biden do something which he clearly right now is not willing to do, which is to end Trump's policy of adding on additional coercive measures. It's really unconscionable, and it shows the true vicious imperialist character of the Biden administration. But this letter which I helped organize. I called people and texted them and emailed them. In my capacity as national director of the Answer Coalition, I worked with the People's Forum in New York City, Code Pink, and other organizations. And within three days, we were able to gather 400 signatures for this ad. And the ad came out just a few days later. The signers included, in addition to the People's Forum and Answer Coalition and Code Pink, the Vermont State Labor Council of the AFL-CIO, Black Lives Matter Global Network. We had, of course, Lula, Noam Chomsky, Professor Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Jane Fonda, Daniel Ellsberg, Danny Glover, Oliver Stone, Susan Sarandon, Emma Thompson, the actor, Marisa Torme, Dr. Liz Theo Harris. We had so many people, including not only Lula, but Other former heads of state, including Rafael Correa, former president of Ecuador, at the same time, I don't know if all of you saw the Illuminator, that wonderful ability to project images, huge images that said, let Cuba live, unblock Cuba, etc., on some of the biggest buildings in Times Square all night long on Friday night at the same time that the ad came out. And then there were caravans for Cuba all around the country. And here in Washington, D.C., yesterday, we welcomed Carlos Lazo from Miami, a group of Miami-based Cuban-Americans who were walking all the way from Miami to the United States, 1,300 miles, with a message. They were bringing 27,000 petition signatures signed by Cuban-Americans in Florida mainly asking President Biden to lift the 243 coercive measures that Trump added to make the blockade even more severe. And we had 400 people come out yesterday. It was a big showing. It was a coalition showing. It took place under adverse circumstances because, as I've said, the CIA, NED, USAID, all of these intelligence services aren't doing now what they've been doing for the last 62 years, which is to finance right-wing Cuban opposition groups. And they came to Washington yesterday. There was an effort to try to stop this demonstration from happening. They used you know, tactics of thuggery, threats of violence, intimidation, death threats. But our contingent was very strong. We held all that area in Lafayette Park in front of the White House yesterday on July 25th. It was a very big victory, I would say, for the movement that is responding to the need for Cuba to have solidarity from the people of the United States. Nicole, also yesterday is July 26th. 68 years ago, Fidel Castro led a group of 135 rebels who attacked the Moncada Fortress during the reign of the dictator Batista. 
That was July 26, 1953 in Santiago de Cuba. And they were defeated in their effort to storm the fortress, to gather guns, to begin an armed struggle against the dictatorship. It was a terrible military setback. There were some soldiers who were killed, 15 who died. And then of the people who were part of the Fidel Castro-led delegation, 56 were captured in a hospital. They were immediately and summarily executed. 18 more of the rebels were captured a couple days later, and they were also taken out to a small arms target range and also executed. Their corpses were strewn about the garrison to simulate death in combat. 34 more fleeing rebels were captured, and they were immediately executed after they admitted participation. But Fidel Castro, shockingly, lived, and he was imprisoned. He was put on an island. He was brought to trial a little bit later. It was there representing himself that he made his famous speech, History Will absolved me, where he explained why they had taken up arms against the dictatorship. And as a consequence of that speech and the mass movement that was still so strong in Cuba, the speech was smuggled out page by page through a number of underground methods, and it was published. And the Cuban people read the speech by Fidel, why they had taken up arms against Batista. And it helped create or revive the movement. And the movement became so strong that the Batista government finally amnestied Fidel and the other prisoners. In 1955, they were exiled. They went to Mexico and they immediately began again forming what became the July 26th movement, which by January 1st, 1959, led a revolution that toppled this U.S.-backed dictator. And it happened so dynamically, so quickly, with so much popular support that the United States was unprepared for it. Otherwise, Fidel and the Cuban revolution would have undoubtedly been strangled in the crib, so to speak, to borrow a phrase that Winston Churchill employed about the Bolsheviks in 1917, strangled the Bolshevik baby in its crib. The United States was sort of caught flat-footed. And then Cuba was able to make an alliance with the Soviet Union and the socialist camp as the U.S. tried to destroy the Cuban revolution. And as a consequence, Cuba, its revolution, the revolutionary process, continued to prevail throughout the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. By Caribbean standards, during that whole period, Cuba was an affluent country. Free education, illiteracy had been overcome, free health care. The fact that Cuba was able to extend a hand of solidarity in a literal material way to the struggle for liberation in the southern part of Africa against apartheid. All of these achievements of the Cuban Revolution were testament not only to its strength, but to the unique set of international circumstances that allowed it to not only succeed, but to continue to thrive. And now Biden, like Trump, feels that as the U.S. has been able to isolate Venezuela and carry out regime change against Lula and the Workers' Party in Brazil, that they're going for it in Cuba. And all the more reason that progressives in the United States must understand that we have an ethical, moral, and political obligation to extend solidarity to the people of Cuba. Cuba has meant so much to the people of the world who are fighting for social justice. Now, in their hour of need, we have to extend solidarity. Right. Just to go back briefly to the rally that happened this weekend at the White House, the thing that I think was really striking to a lot of people and that I know many around the country have been noticing is not just the virulence, but notably, I mean, there were so many Trump flags being flown in the group of people who were protesting the demonstration that was rightfully there for ending the blockade. There was so much vitriol. I heard people cursing the name of the Black Lives Matter campaign, cursing Antifa, cursing you know anyone who comes out to protest. It was just very clear the kind of politics that were going on in that group of people. And I thought that was really telling. One thing that's missing for anyone here in the United States is hearing the words of the Cuban government, the actual words of President Diaz-Canal in Cuba. People came out in droves to support the revolution, not just in Havana, not only in Havana, but in Santiago and in other cities. 
And then President Diaz-Canal spoke to the crowd of people who'd come out in support of the revolution on July 17th. And, you know, he outlined some really important things that I want to share, that I want to read from his speech. This is a non-official translation. And again, this is from July 17th. It was a Saturday and huge crowds of people. And he came out to speak and he said, quote, in the previous weeks, an intense political communication operation was developed by a large media intoxication platform financed by the U.S. government and by the Florida political machinery. Its objective was to encourage unrest and instability in the country, taking advantage of the difficult conditions caused by the pandemic, the intensified blockade, and the 243 measures of the Trump administration. In those days, they carried out acts of unconventional warfare that included calls for social outbreak, violence, assault on police officers, vandalism, and sabotage. For this, they used artificial intelligence and big data systems, cyber tropes, and acts of cyber terrorism to promote the artisanal manufacture and use of weapons or incendiary elements, integrated actions of harassment, blackmail, or financing of digital leaders or international influencers. They had the complicity of a powerful transnational company that allowed them to violate their own regulations with impunity and disregarded the legitimate complaints of users and some press media and cable agencies. Cuban television has highlighted the objectives of this campaign by reconstructing the events of last Sunday in sequence. And this is just a note for me. That was July 11th. First, the protests were called. Then the false account of the events was constructed to generate emotional reactions of solidarity with the protesters. And then the vandalism actions that occurred hours before our improvised appearance on television when we returned from San Antonio de los Baños were unleashed, unquote. So a lot of people, a lot of media, a lot of institutions tell you, you know, don't believe anything the Cuban government says. They're just lying. But, you know, after hearing from what he said, first of all, I mean, this actually makes a lot of sense. You know, especially those of us on the left who've studied this kind of thing and looked at a lot of the evidence from past events of the U.S. government and the U.S. military, this would not be a new thing that the U.S. is doing. This kind of attempt you know, they call the objective encouraging unrest and instability in the country. That's what President Diaz-Canal said in that bit I just read you. Taking advantage of the difficult conditions caused by the pandemic, the intensified blockade, and the 243 measures of the Trump administration. That wouldn't be new. That wouldn't be a surprise to any of us, I don't think. So first of all, I think let's just take it on face value rather than the way the media likes to portray it, which is, you know, that it could actually be right. But then, don't just do that because I've also compiled some really strong evidence that totally backs up what he's talking about. Something else that I think is really important, a couple of other components here, you know, one of them that you mentioned a little bit, Brian, that, you know, obviously the U.S. state has been working hard for the last 60 plus years to, you know, try to get rid of the revolution, to try to get the people to overturn it, to try to foment a coup and more in past years, of course, too, with the Bay of Pigs and other attempts. but. You know, I think it's a good time to talk about exactly what that looks like. And I was I've been reading a little bit about the so-called San Isidro movement. I, you know, I'm using the word movement loosely because this is something that the US government has spent millions of dollars to cultivate. These anti-government Cuban rappers, musicians, artists, journalists, you know, it's really this very explicit attempt to weaponize culture. And there's one man in particular, Yotel, he's a Spain-based Cuban rapper, so he lives in Spain. And he helped to write Patria y Vida, really the anthem of the counter-revolution. And this man, Yotel, he participated in an EU parliament event convened by right-wing legislators, speaking directly before Venezuelan coup leader Juan Guaido, who the U.S. several years ago confidently proclaimed the president of Venezuela, despite only 2% of the Venezuelans at that time knowing who Juan Guaido was. Yotel has also worked with the State Department and he is a part of this so-called San Isidro movement. So, you know, this is one component of the attempts that the U.S. government are really trying with to try to foment a coup, to try to foment regime change. And in this particular instance, there's from the July 11th protests, there's a an activist against digital disinformation. He's the director of Pandemia Digital. His name is Julian Macias Tovar. And you can find a very long thread that he wrote about and analyzed on Twitter, he essentially looked at over 2 million tweets that used the hashtag SOS Cuba. So he did an analysis of those. And one thing he found was that the very first account to use the hashtag 
was one of those accounts that's just a short name and then a string of numbers. Often those are bot accounts, right? Who's making a, an account for yourself that's just a random word and then a random string of numbers? So that was the first account to use the hashtag on July 10th and 11th. This specific account was tweeting at a rate of five tweets a second, which obviously indicates some sort of automated situation. And then the other two other things that are important of what he found, he looked at the accounts that were participating in the SOS Cuba hashtag campaign and saw a very high number, I'm quoting now, a very high number of accounts created on July 10th and 11th, more than 1,500, unquote. So it's more than 1,500 accounts that were created right as the protests were starting. The vast majority of them were, again, just some random name and some random string of numbers, and they had just been created. It certainly looks like a lot of bots, and this would not be the first time we've seen this kind of thing. And then, you know, the one other component here is that when he's doing this analysis, he found that a lot of the movement under this hashtag, a lot of the tweets in this SOS Cuba campaign are repetition of exact tweets where there's this type of really clear automated pattern, hundreds of thousands of tweets. And, you know, it's a similar number of these automated looking accounts have a very similar number of followers and followees. So when we look at all of these elements together, this is not a coincidence. This cannot be a coincidence. It's so important, I think, for people to develop a sense of skepticism or some critical thinking when we see a criticism of a longtime enemy of the United States, a longtime target of US regime change, and that criticism appears to be coming from a left-wing point of view. You know, it's relatively easy to spot right-wing US propaganda. You know, it, it wouldn't be very appealing to progressive people in the United States to talk about how, you know, Cuba is evil because they don't respect private property and corporations were taken away from their U.S. owners. That's not going to be that appealing to progressive people in the United States. And the U.S. government knows that, and the CIA knows that, and the NED, and all these other arms of U.S. imperialism. And so very frequently, the United States, and not just in relation to Cuba, very frequently the United States backs groups that have a political appeal that appears to be left-ish, right? Like this, you know, quote-unquote San Isidro movement. All throughout the 19. 70s and 80s. I mean, if you look at CAA documents, they'll use this acronym NCL, and that stood for non-communist left. And they would talk constantly about how they can promote a non-communist left to take up the political space that would otherwise be occupied by those who genuinely seek revolutionary change in society and into the domination of the United States. So this is a, a tried and true tactic, I think, that people should be on the lookout for. Yeah, and I think that it's especially important to recognize that they're using the popular art form of hip hop, using young black hip hop artists to exploit what has been acknowledged to be, you know, the residue of centuries of discrimination in Cuba. So the revolution was able to wipe out a lot of legal racism, segregation, Jim Crow type segregation that the U.S exported to Cuba, actually, as they occupied it a century ago, right? But the revolution can't, over just some decades, eliminate centuries of pattern and practice of discriminating against Black people the ways that it happens in a non-governmental sphere, okay? And when Cuba had to resort to tourism and outside investment. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were companies who set up hotels there. I mean, I know from visiting there that the hotels hired, you know, white or light, lighter skinned Cubans. A lot of the black population was relegated back to parts of the informal economy. And so because of this same blockade because of the same economic strangulation, the efforts that Cuba has made to move in the right directions in terms of racial justice are thwarted and they're hurt. And actually, President Diaz-Canal had set up a commission last year. I was supposed to go back to participate in a special conference where they were talking about these issues of race and the, the lingering issues of race and racism in Cuba. And because of the pandemic, it was canceled. But the point is that these type of operatives were able to fill that breach and take advantage of the space that was created in terms of dissatisfaction, the need to bring in tourism, 
in the 90s, especially, that opened the floodgates for a lot of the old patterns for white or lighter skinned Cubans to be favored in terms of getting jobs and opportunities in the tourism industry. And then as the stranglehold continued and Obama had this more opening up, it was the white or lighter skinned Cubans that were able to get more remittances from their families in Miami, able to open businesses. They were able to reap the benefits of having more of the private market in Cuba. Right. I think that's a really, really important comment and insight, Esther, because the reality is that when you have a socialist government and it sort of takes over a class-based society, a society with class divisions, those class divisions, which oftentimes parallel racial divisions, especially in the Western Hemisphere where slavery and institutionalized racism was so profound and so systematically imposed on society as an important way for capitalism to rule, those don't disappear right away. Cuba, in fact, has had to reintroduce elements of the capitalist market. They did that during this special period after the loss of all of their aid and trade with the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc when it disappeared. And so when you have markets then those who have access to dollars are going to do better. And dollars, of course, are the international currency. And whose families were living in Miami, especially who had access to dollars? Of course, it was the people who left Cuba in 1959, 60, 61. Well, who were they? They were the whiter, upper middle class and bourgeoisie. The base of the Cuban revolution were the black Cubans, in Santiago de Cuba, where the Mancada attacks started, this is predominantly people of African descent in Cuba. And they were the poor, the peasants, the poorest workers, and they were the supporters of the revolution. But then you have a society where in the normal functioning of economic life, especially once you become integrated either into markets or into the world economy, it tends to accentuate discriminatory patterns. Again, the issue of remittances being a very important one. Who has access to dollars? Well, it's who has families in Miami. And then there's another element of this, and I saw this some of the same things that you saw. One of the other things is that when Cuba had a full employment economy, everybody was guaranteed meaningful work there wasn't a situation where people had to more or less fend for themselves. The social guarantees included full employment. Once the economy started to collapse after the fall of the Soviet Union, you saw you know, Cubans who were professors, some of them even in other professional jobs, driving taxis because they could ferry tourists around and get higher salaries because of tips from tourists who had international currencies like dollars. So there was the replication or the deepening of sort of that kind of inequality in society. It's not the consequence of socialism. It's the consequence of the reality that Cuba had to survive in the special period. And having to survive, it meant that it had to do two things, open a market, a limited market, but still a market nonetheless. And secondly, to bring back international tourism, which Cuba had gotten rid of international tourism in the 60s and 70s because of its corrosive impact on society. These rich tourists who could come from the United States or European countries with lots of money, they had to do that in order to survive. And the government, Fidel and the others, leveled with the people. They said, it's not that we love this, but we don't have an option. And these are the problems that, as Walter was pointing out, I think it's so important, especially for progressives in the United States who don't have to cope with how do you feed 11 million people every day when imperialism is trying to strangle you? How do you provide them with anesthetics after surgery when imperialism deprives you of medicine? You know, all of these things that the Cuban government has had to contend with that people elsewhere don't have to contend with. I mean, if you don't appreciate that and put that into context, your so-called socialism and so-called solidarity is pretty empty. 
Right. And you can even see mainstream journalists like Nicole Hannah-Jones being attacked because she acknowledged how of all the Latin American countries where the same type of Jim Crow racism, the residue of it still exists, that Cuba was miles ahead, that it had eliminated many of the barriers and and pointed out, as I think we've mentioned on the show, how so many black people in Cuba were able to get an education. They're so they make up a large part of the doctors and professionals in Cuba. When I was in Santiago de Cuba for the first time, of the graduating class of the medical students that year, the majority were black. So when you have these groups come out, you know, it's just shameful because, you know, hip hop is recognized as a kind of an African American art form born here. And to see it used by these young black men who I have to just think are ignorant partly, but also just really caught up in the money that they've been able to make as, you know, being paid by these type of NED type cutouts, money that they couldn't make in Cuba, obviously. And it's shameful, but it's also, I recognize it for what it is. Indeed. I want to also say that while we've been mobilizing support inside the United States and in other countries in support of Cuba during the last two weeks, the Cuban people have also been in the streets and you'd never know it from the U.S. media. Last Saturday on July 17th, there was a huge demonstration right in downtown Havana by tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Cubans who support the revolution. Again, on other parts of the island, including in Santiago, the eastern part that I was talking about, huge demonstrations in support of the revolution. Did you hear about them? No, you didn't, because the U.S. media didn't tell the story about them. Now, at the demonstration that was last Saturday, again, I think it was more than 100,000 Cubans, the president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, spoke, and he said about what happened on July 11th. He said, in the previous weeks, an intense political communication operation was developed by a large media intoxication platform financed by the United States government and by the Florida political machinery. Its objective was to encourage unrest and instability in the country, taking advantage of the difficult conditions caused by the pandemic, the intensified blockade, and the 243 measures of the Trump administration. In those days, they carried out acts of unconventional warfare that included calls for social outbreak, violence, assault on police officers, vandalism, and sabotage. The Cuban president goes on, for this, they used artificial intelligence and big data systems, cyber tropes, and acts of cyber terrorism to promote the artisanal manufacture and use of weapons of incendiary elements, integrated actions of harassment, blackmail, or financing of digital leaders or international influencers. They had the complicity of a powerful transnational company that allowed them to violate their own regulations with impunity and disregarded the legitimate complaints of users and some press media and cable agencies. And then he talked about how the Cuban government and Cuban TV is now highlighting how this operation actually has been employed in Cuba. And they're doing this with evening a television program documenting that Cuba is the target of a destabilization campaign using, especially in this case, the internet, big data systems, popular culture, in order to appeal to people in society who are either suffering because of economic shortages or who, because they're not working and not in school, are part of a like a social milieu that's manipulatable by Miami CIA-based money. And I think we're seeing all of that. I want to go back to the point that Walter made. The CIA developed something after the end of World War II in the Cold War called a category NCL, non-communist left. And the CIA financed the non-communist left. If the CIA only works through Mitch McConnell and you know Marco Rubio and the right wing, 
Well, the whole part of the population that's liberal, that's progressive, that sees itself in that way, they won't be able to be influenced. The CIA needs to have left liberal voices doing the bidding of the U.S. government too. So there's an excellent book called The Cultural Cold War, The CIA and the World of Arts and Letters. It's written by Francis Stoner Saunders. It was published, I believe, in 2001. It's called The Cultural Cold War, The CIA and the World of Arts and Letters. Buy that book or get it from a library. Read that book. It documents with declassified documents how the, quote, NCL, the non-communist left, was a big target for CIA funding and financing because they had to build up anti-communist opinion within that part of the population that saw itself as progressive. All right, we're going to continue to follow the struggle in Cuba. This is obviously going to be big because Cuba is in the crosshairs of imperialism. And Cuba's fighting back. It's mobilizing its people. It's trying to take measures that will help build support within the population and expose the machinations of imperialism. And at the same time, more importantly, I think for us is to build solidarity movements in the United States to let Cuba live. Anyway, we're talking about the role of Miami in Cuba, the insidious role of the counter-revolution in Miami, which is just a front for the CIA. But speaking of Florida, Nicole, Floridians are being overrun by the failure of their government when it comes to COVID. Yes, they are. The state of Florida now accounts for one in five new coronavirus infections in the United States. And their governor, Ron DeSantis, not only has been known for his quote, how the hell am I going to be able to drink a beer with a mask on? But his office is now actually selling merchandise, including a beer koozie with that precise phrase on one side and Governor Ron DeSantis's face on the other, while one in five new coronavirus infections in the entire country are in Florida. But, you know, more broadly looking at the cases, you know, back in January when we were at the very height of the pandemic, there were about 300,000 or 250,000 new cases every day. So we're significantly lower than that right now. We're at, you know, around 52,000 new cases every day. But that's up from two weeks ago. That's up 170%. So it's up quite a bit. A couple of weeks ago, a month ago, we were down to about 10,000 or 12,000 cases a day. And now we're up to 50,000 cases a day. So I know that's a lot of numbers, but suffice it to say, yes, of course, we've seen a huge drop in cases since vaccines have become available, thanks to so many people who worked so hard on that. But things are going up. Despite the fact that we've been vaccinated, we have not fully been able to take advantage of that, frankly, because of a lot of the ways that vaccines have been totally politicized. So we're facing this 170% increase over the last two weeks. And I'll say deaths are also up 20%. And since we're seeing cases start to rise again right now, we're going to start seeing deaths rising probably in the next few weeks as well. And about 97% of people who are hospitalized with COVID right now have not been vaccinated. So the reason we're seeing this increase, the reason there are now you know tens of thousands of new cases starting to happen every single day, you know one of the main reasons is because the vaccine has become so politicized because conservative commentators, conservative politicians are making this into a statement, are making this vaccine into a political statement. So I just want to say that number again. Well, there's a couple numbers. We've got three approved vaccines that are effective against the coronavirus, three of them. Unlike the rest of the world, this country has unparalleled access to those vaccines. Um, but 97% of hospitalized patients right now with COVID have not been vaccinated. Very clearly, there's a, a really direct link here. I want to play a clip of former President Trump. This is from last Saturday, so four or so days ago in Arizona. He was at a rally. And this is reflective of what we're now starting to see. Like I was saying, it's been so political for so long. And there's been this, you know, perverse pride in not getting a vaccine. This, you know, people like Tucker Carlson, people like Donald Trump, people like Ron DeSantis saying, you know, you don't need one. You can't mandate us having to wear a mask. You can't mandate a vaccine. We have hashtag freedom. But because it's so bad, because 
there's so many people being hospitalized because people are dying because they're not getting the vaccine. There are a lot of conservatives who are newly starting to say, actually, you should take this vaccine or something slightly less than that. But there's Kay Ivey of Alabama, Republican Governor Kay Ivey, Republican Governor Jim Justice of West Virginia, and former Trump White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's running for governor in Arkansas. They have all essentially said you should go get vaccinated. Same with the Republican governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, you know, is actually starting to talk about this. So it's clear that, you know, this is a game that is very serious. It's not actually a game. I shouldn't even use that word, but it's been played like it's a game. And yet it's not because it's people's lives. Here is a clip of former President Trump. This weekend, there's, of course, his usual kind of nonsense at the beginning. But note that he actually does say, go get the vaccine. How about the vaccine? I came up with the vaccine. They said it would take three to five years. Gonna save the world. I recommend you take it, but I also believe in your freedoms 100%. But just so you understand. But it was a great achievement. It was a great achievement. You know, Brian, of course, he says, I did this. Yeah, uh-huh, okay. And of course, he says, but I support your freedoms. I mean, that's what it's come to mean, even though it doesn't, right? Like, this is this medical miracle, frankly, of ingenuity, of work, enough funding of the NIH over the past decades that actually made this happen. Yeah, I would say Kay Ivey, Jim Justice, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, these people should be treated as criminals because they knew, they know that the vaccine is useful. When Trump was president, they were promoting the vaccine. They're criminals. They're responsible for the people in their states who believe them when they peddled all of this anti-scientific, ridiculous nonsense for a narrow political agenda. They're opportunists, they're criminals, and now the fact that they can say, oh, and by the way, now that all of our constituents, all the people who believed us are actually dying and those hospitals are being overwhelmed, maybe it is a good idea. I mean, also critical. And Trump himself, they promoted this idea that somehow doing something against public health was an act of freedom, as if you know, not wearing a seatbelt is an act of freedom, as if not stopping for red lights is an act of freedom. I mean, this kind of BS on the part of these right-wing demagogues who now, under the pressure of their own constituents dying in record numbers, have to backpedal. I mean, it's really a shameless demonstration of opportunism and also a reflection of what, you know, what some of the big problems are in the United States in terms of having a good form of governance. Yeah. Brian, I want to read you another statement that I think makes your point 100%. This is Representative Clay Higgins. He's a Republican in Louisiana. He's an outspoken coronavirus skeptic. He even drafted legislation to make vaccine mandates a federal crime. He announced this weekend, unsurprisingly, that he, his wife, and his son all have COVID-19. I'm going to read you a couple of sentences from his Facebook post. I have COVID. Becca has COVID. My son has COVID. Becca and I had COVID before, early on in January 2020, before the world really knew what it was. So this is our second experience with the CCP biological attack weaponized virus. And this episode is far more challenging. It has required all of my devoted energy. And here, Brian, I want you to listen really closely to this line. He goes on. We are all under excellent care and our prognosis is positive. We are very healthy, generally speaking, and our treatment of any health concern always encompasses Western, Eastern, and holistic variables, unquote. So this is the thing. The people that we're talking about, Donald Trump, Jim Justice, Kay Ivey, Asa Hutchinson, Clay Higgins, they have excellent care. They have had excellent care, making their prognosis much more likely to come out good. Not to mention, of course, that he blames China again for the virus, which is completely, obviously not, A, not true, and B, deeply racist and anti-communist. But he also then goes on to say, yeah, yeah, but we're going to go ahead and take advantage of like, you know, Eastern medicine of all the of all of the fruits of the world, despite the fact that I'm also, you know, working to demonize this place. So it's just really, really disgusting. He can demonize the vaccine. He can make sure his followers don't get it. But but when, you know, when he gets in trouble, he's got all the care and resources that he needs. 
It's such an amazing thing. I mean, the problem that most places in the world are having is that they're materially unable to vaccinate enough of their population. They don't have enough money. The United States and Western European countries hoarded all the vaccines. The major pharmaceutical monopolies that dominate the world market are not located in their countries. They can't get enough vaccine. And that's what the problem is. That's why not enough of their population is vaccinated. The problem in the United States is not that we're materially incapable of vaccinating the whole population. Far from it. I mean, the United States has hoarded far, far more doses of vaccine than they need. The problem is that the United States is politically incapable of vaccinating its whole population because it has such a dysfunctional political system. I mean, a section of the ruling elite are so committed to this extreme far-right ideological mobilization of a section of the population that public health doesn't even enter into the equation. So, you know, there's the people like these, you know, right-wing governors, these Republican commentators, you know, Fox News hosts who talk about how the vaccine or the mask mandate or, you know, things like that are an imposition on people's freedom. They minimize, they downplay the virus. They talk about how it really came from China. Joe Biden does that too, by the way, talk about how it really came from China. And then that opens the door to truly extreme unbelievable ideas to grab hold of a big section of society, really extreme conspiracy theories. It's a wink and a nod to those sort of Alex Jones type people. Here's an opinion poll that caught my attention. It's from two weeks ago. It was commissioned by The Economist and the polling firm was YouGov. So, you know, well-known publication, respected professional polling company. And they found that 20% of the United States population believe that the U.S. government was secretly putting microchips in the vaccines. One in five people, this scientific, reputable polling firm found, one in five people thought that there were secret microchips in the vaccine. There's debate over what constitutes herd immunity. I've seen some people say maybe 85% of the population needs to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity. I mean, even if 100% of the people in this country who did not think that the vaccine was full of secret microchips got vaccinated, they received the vaccine, it's still arguable whether or not that would even bring society to the point of herd immunity. It's an amazing reflection on the state of politics in the U.S. Yeah. And while we're talking about COVID and the pandemic, I just want to point out that this Friday, July 30th, is the 56th anniversary of Medicare being passed. And It's interesting you talk about education and what people's perceptions are, Walter, because some of the same people who believe that there are chips in the vaccine, you know, don't believe in Medicare for all, or they've been taught or persuaded by their elected officials or right wing media that Medicare for all is socialist or communist, but they all want Medicare when they turn 65. So anyway, that is something happening right now. On Saturday, there were actions in, I think, 50 cities to try to press lawmakers, especially elected officials who ran on the platform for Medicare for All, to stand up for it because, you know, we haven't heard that much about it lately. And I think Senator Bernie Sanders was trying to get some expanded Medicare coverage or something in one of the budget reconciliation bills. But there are people out here pointing out just the ridiculous fact that in the middle of a pandemic, we don't have universal health care. One thing that would be good to remember is that Medicare passed in July 1965 after a very long filibuster was finally brought to an end. The Republicans filibustered that. And again, in 2003, when Medicare was expanded to expand drug coverage, The Republicans filibustered that. I mean, the whole purpose of the filibuster is to make sure that nothing good happens for working class people or black people or Latino people, poor people generally. Again, the filibuster being used by the right wing to make sure that nothing good happens to the people. And so in order to just have Medicare or Medicare prescription program, you have to overcome these months and months of filibuster. And in the case of the political constellation now, obviously voting rights for black people, which are being trashed all over the country, those voting rights are going to remain trashed because Biden won't get rid of the filibuster, which even Obama admitted is a relic of the Jim Crow era. It's always been designed to stop black people, especially from gaining any further rights in the United States. 
But again, it's important for the demonstration on the 30th, on the anniversary of the 1965 passage of Medicare, to make clear that this issue hasn't stopped. This issue isn't going away. One ridiculous headline in the Washington Post, Brian, that I saw you highlighting on your Facebook account. I mean, I I just think it's worth going over what this is. There's actually two headlines that the Washington Post used to run an opinion article reflecting on the victory of Pedro Castillo in the Peruvian presidential election. Castillo is a leftist, a trade union leader. He represents the working class, especially the historically excluded rural working class of Peru. And and the elites, both in that country and in this country, are totally freaking out about it. The headline that they ran in their print version is, a far-left president and a fragile democracy, Peru must not be allowed to follow in Venezuela's footsteps. Peru must not be allowed to follow in Venezuela's footsteps. Well, uh, allowed by who? I mean, does the United States get to determine the political future of a sovereign country in a different continent? I mean, does the Washington Post think that they should set the parameters, the limitations for what politicians in Peru should do? I mean, it's a reflection of this arrogant colonial Monroe Doctrine backyard kind of view that the people who are used to running things in the United States have adopted for a long time, for centuries, towards the people of Latin America. I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting. You know, they changed their headline when they put it up on their website, but I still found it to be disgusting. So the online version of the headline is, Peru's democracy survived a squeaker election. Will it outlast the far-left president? Basically saying that the problem was that the election was close in Peru, and the new threat to democracy is this far-left president who was democratically elected. Well, the threat to Peruvian democracy didn't come from the fact that it was a close election. There was no dispute, I mean, no factual dispute as to who won the election. It was close, but I mean, clearly by about 50,000 votes, 40, 50,000 votes, Castillo was the victor. And that was obvious, you know, the day after the election. The threat to Peruvian democracy came from Castillo's opponent, Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of the fascist dictator who ruled the country from 1990 to 2000 with the support of the United States. She, just like Donald Trump, came up with completely, absolutely, utterly baseless allegations of fraud against Castillo, and then essentially threatened and attempted to organize a military coup to abolish democracy in Peru and install herself as the president. That's what Peru's democracy survived, not a far left, quote unquote, president. Completely outrageous. Esther, before we say goodbye, let's remember Bob Moses, really significant, significant historic figure, fighter for civil rights, teacher, educator. Bob Moses died in the past week. Yes, he died on Sunday at his home in Hollywood, Florida, at the age of 86. And as you mentioned, he was a scholar, actually. He left his job at a private school in New York City to face the violence and terror of the Jim Crow South in an effort to register Black people to vote in the 1960s. And in the process, he became, just as you said, this major figure in shaping the trajectory of what would really change, you know, politics and the life for so many people, especially in Mississippi. You know, he worked mainly in Mississippi and those active at the time say that he was as large and influential in that state as the Reverend Martin Luther King. But unlike some of the better known people like King, or maybe one of the reasons he wasn't as well known is because he believed in working at the local level organizing poor sharecroppers and developing local leaders and organizers, like in the freedom schools that he helped set up. He was incredible in organizing in Mississippi, and his work touched so many of the pivotal moments in the civil rights movement in that state. He helped to start the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, and that recruited college students in the North to joined voter registration campaigns in the state. And that is the project that led James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwarner to Mississippi to work together. And we know that these young men were murdered in rural Neshoba County by the police and the Klan. And this case electrified the country. And the search for these murdered young men brought up other bodies, Black men who had been murdered, and their murders were never 
even counted by the state or recognized by the media. So it just really showed the terror that Black Mississippians were living under. He also helped create the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which challenged the all-white Mississippi delegation at the 1964 Democratic Convention. It was a segregated delegation that was ultimately supported by the Democratic Party, even though the people in the same delegation continued to deny the right of Black people to vote, and they had even passed a resolution denouncing the Civil Rights Act. So this was a real pivotal moment that he was a part of that was a pivotal moment for black people in this country to really understand how blacks will be used when convenient by the Democratic Party. And at the point, the Democratic Party was still trying to hold on to the Dixiecrats, you know, to keep white Southerners in the Democratic Party. And this would be one of the pivotal moments that marked the end of when they could count on these white Southerners being Democrats. You know, Lyndon Johnson was forced to sign the Voting Rights Act a year later. And a large part of the momentum for that was the same 1964 convention when Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, electrified the country with her speech talking about the torture and abuse she had faced simply for trying to vote and for trying to register others. Years later, when his eldest child, Maisha, was in the eighth grade, her school did not offer algebra. And so Bob Moses arranged for her to do advanced work on her own. And then he started teaching her and other classmates algebra and advanced math in a system which came to be known as his algebra project. And that made math more approachable and easier for students to understand. And by the 1990s, the Algebra Project had stretched to places including Boston, San Francisco. They won accolades from the National Science Foundation, and it was reaching 9,000 children all across the country. So Moses saw teaching math literacy just like he saw registering Black people to vote. And it was a vital tool you would need to survive in society and to be a part of society in this century. And as I said, he died Sunday at his home in Hollywood, Florida. He was 86 years old. Yes, thank you, Esther. The Algebra Project. People should look up the Algebra Project. Our friend Jay Gillen in Baltimore also helping to facilitate the Algebra Project there. Tens of thousands, or at least many, many thousands, more than 10,000 students, young people, it's not just students, young people being integrated into the Algebra Project And in addition to learning algebra and math, becoming leaders, becoming real leaders themselves of other young people in the fight for social justice. Walter, before we end, let's go to Liberation News. What's in the newsletter this week? Yeah, I want to highlight a few articles and to sign up for that newsletter, go to liberationnews.org and you'll see the button at the top. One article, it's titled COVID plus capitalism equals death. It's about the announcement from the CDC last week that the life expectancy in the United States plunged the greatest amount since World War II. In 2020, life expectancy in the United States plunged by historic levels that was especially pronounced among Black and Latino people. You can read the analysis on liberationnews.org titled COVID plus capitalism equals death. There's another article that covers the negotiations over what could be a not so impressive infrastructure bill or a quite impressive social spending bill in the US Congress that's titled Will the Democrats Ditch Consensus and Deliver Promised Reforms? Finally, I want to highlight an article titled Why Are the Rio Grande and Other Rivers Drying Up? You can find out the answer to that question by reading this article. So again, liberationnews.org, check it every day. We have updates all the time and sign up for our newsletter by clicking at the link at the top. Well, Nicole, as we go out, we want to invite everyone to stay with us. Tomorrow will be our regular Wednesday segment with Richard Wolf. We'll also be joined by Dr. Ken Hammond on Thursday. This is the next part of our multi-part series on China's foreign policy since 1949. In this next episode, we'll talk about the years 2012 to 2021, meaning till today, when Xi Jinping becomes the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, and when the United States reverses or fundamentally alters its orientation towards China, 
now preparing for major power conflict with the People's Republic of China. So we have a lot more all this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.